I am Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Years ago, I had my first and only brush with making art. The kind of art that someone displays in a gallery, complete with artist statement and a reception where your friends come and look. Obviously, that didn't make me an artist, but what I did take away from the experience was a genuine appreciation for the versatility of Braille. It was the first time I thought of Braille as artistic. Of course, Braille is a language, and it has been a game changer for people who are blind, if you'd excuse the understatement. But Braille can also be beautiful, not just to the touch, but it turns out also visually. Today, we discuss Braille's art. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta, joining you from the Accessible Media Studios in Toronto. Today I have my hair in a ponytail. It's a little scraggly, I apologize, but uh, who's really interested in the back of my head anyways? And I have a pair of dark headphones, black headphones, uh, and I'm wearing a V-neck uh, shirt. It's a T-shirt, really, in a in a rose pink, uh, and it has short, uh, short cap sleeves. So I'm really excited to talk to you uh, and talk to Clark Reynolds today because he's our artist. He's he's called the Blind Braille Artist, and he's got an amazing website, seeingwithoutseeing.com. He also hosts his own podcast, and he's joining us today all the way from the UK, and I'm really delighted to welcome Clark to the, uh, to the program. Clark, hello, and welcome to The Pulse. I'm so glad you could join us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, and uh, uh, Canada was my first over-trip holiday when I was 21, uh, I did Canada 16 days from uh, Toronto all the way to um, Vancouver. So oh. Canada is an amazing place. Oh, well, I'm so glad to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious because I love uh, the UK and I've traveled a lot to the UK. Um, I love London and I've seen shows in the West End. So it's nice to know the feeling goes both ways and um, that you had a good time in Canada. I want to talk to you a little bit about how you got started with um uh, with working with Braille as an art form, was there a singular moment uh, when you realized that Braille had artistic potential that you hadn't really come across before? It was strange because I've been an artist uh, professionally now for 22 years. Um, I knew I wanted to be a professional artist from the age of six, being blind in one eye. And then I started to lose my sight in my 30s. That's come up to 10 years ago now. But it was always meant to be Braille. For some reason, I used to always describe how I see. It's like looking for a thousand dots. Uh, and so I was a big fan of pointillism. And then when I was given that diagnosis, oh, you, you're going blind, um, someone gave me a Braille Perkins typewriter. Now I knew of Braille. Um, I, you know, I felt it in lifts and, and things like that. And then I didn't understand what it was all about. And then because we're, I'm an artist, it, it was a code. So I learned Braille really quickly, like three weeks. And it just a light bulb went off my head. It's like, why can't this be an art form? Just like a typographer uses a letter, why can't I use a dot to host the English language? And that's how it all came about, really. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about how you actually incorporate Braille into your artwork? Is it that you have images and then you supplement those images with Braille or does the Braille become the image? The Braille becomes the image. What's the added old saying? Uh, painting says a thousand words. Uh, literally mine does. So 
with my artwork, I, I create stories about sight loss, the good, the bad, and the ugly sight loss, and I transcribe them, and, and, and they create imagery. But for me, it's the, na the nature of the dot, you know, it's such a pop art kind of style visually. I'm a visual artist. But the added uh, bonus to me is you can physically touch my artwork, so it, it goes on both levels. So the brow dot, when you give loads of sentences out, what I find fascinating is the negative spaces, you know, because each piece is different. So that's what drives me in, in creating the artwork now. So when you say negative spaces, are you talking about the space in between the braille dots? That's it. it, it misconception of what braille is. So it's not about reading the individual dots. Braille is a pattern. And when you blow that up, that, that individual dot up, the pattern comes more distinctive. So it's not about the gap between the dot, gap, dot, gap. So everything is squished together. So there's no gaps between the dots when I blow it up. So you can physically feel the pattern. And what you're feeling is the negative spaces. So the maze within the maze of my artworks. And that's what I find fascinating. So every piece is different because of the words that I say. And do the words you say always correspond to visual impairment or blindness, or do you explore other themes as well? I explore other themes, you know. Um, so they have a, a series called Fab to Touch Ice Lollies. They're, they're about sight loss, about my journey. But then I did a series of um, Andy Warhol, uh, Marilyn Monroe prints. And uh, it, they were called What Would Andy Warhol Say? So the idea is a visual aspect. You'll see that print. But a blind person would know more than you because they can read the, the artwork. So it's giving power back to a vision impaired person in a visual world. And is it just raised dots on a white canvas or do you actually incorporate colour into your artwork? Because you did say previously that you're a visual artist. So what role does colour play in your artwork? Colour plays an important role because, you know, foremost, I'm trying to show the visual world, you know, the stimuli of colour. And that's how I want. I started off Braille. The idea is I want Braille to be universal. And so I created a colour-coded Braille um, so that allows everyone to access it through a key or by touch. So it makes it enjoyable for everyone. Because on, on the one hand, when you go to a gallery, you only look at art for seven seconds. With my art, you know, you spend 10, 15, 20 minutes decoding that piece and then you want to decode the other. So you spend hours at my exhibitions. And that's that's the exciting part about my artwork. Do people uh, find that a, a, a novel experience? If someone's used to just standing in front of a piece of art for seven seconds and moving on, what sort of response do you get from audiences that have now spent 10 minutes before each individual work of art? Oh, that, everyone loves it. And obviously children love it. You're told when you go into a, a box, you know, white box gallery and you see all this wonderful art, but there's loads of barriers in the way. You can't get close to it. But the part, you know, big signs at my exhibition saying you must touch the artwork, you know, and that's really strange in that environment where you're touching it. And even though you can't read, bro, the idea of just touching a piece of art and experiencing it in a new way breaks down the barriers and the elitism of art. You know, art is for everyone, and and it's key to to show people, you know, what art, the power of art, and the power of touch, really. What are you hoping that people will take away? You talked about breaking down the elitism of art, Ab above and beyond breaking down some of the conventional barriers that people have, and not really touching the artwork or getting involved with the artwork. What else are you hoping that visitors to your exhibitions will take away, uh, in not just in terms of interacting with art and artwork, but maybe thinking differently about blindness and visual impairment as well? Oh, that, that is so key. So for me, 
uh, especially in England, the, the idea of the word disability or blindness. Now, I was an artist before I lost my sight, uh, and I studied, I got my degrees. But because I lost my sight, my profession became a hobby for some reason. In society's eyes, because you have a, a disability, if you go into the creative industry, it's, it's seen as a hobby. And that's really what I try to push back the boundaries with. And and also that tick box exercise where major galleries think that because they have to include a disabled artist in their exhibitions, I've become this fad, you know. And I'm lucky enough now that the gallery that took me on, Qantas Gallery, don't see me like that. They see me as a world-class artist that's breaking down barriers. And that my artwork now is bought by collectors all around the world. You know, my story is a powerful one, but foremost, I want to show the world that a blind person can compete in mainstream art. I'm as powerful as all those major artists like Jeff Koons, Damien Hirst, Tracy Emin. I take my experiences and I put it onto my canvas. It just so happens that I use a brow dot to do that. You mentioned you lost your vision uh, nearly entirely about 10 years ago, but you've been an artist all your life. How has your artistic process evolved? I mean, we talked about how your artistic work has evolved, but is the way that you make art different now than it was 10 years ago, just because you're, you're seeing less? It is, but I, I say I always used to do pointillism. Um, so I used to create 3D pointillism, um, using wooden dowels. I did felt tips and pe chalk pestles and that lot. Um, and when I, when I started to lose my sight, it was really hard, obviously, to do drawings and paintings if I can't physically react to it, you know, even though I can't see my artwork, because of the nature of the tactility, the dots, the the methodology of it, you know, it's organic as well as structured, and I like that. So for me, being part of my art with the words, literally put my heart and soul on each piece of artwork I do is so rewarding, even though I don't see it. And the only way I see my artwork is at my exhibitions, you know, when people are engaging with it and about talking about it, talking about the artwork, and that's what excites me the most. You know, and that's what enjoy. That's what, even though I'm 42 years old, when I create an artwork, when I go to exhibitions, I still feel like that uh, 20 year old, you know, experiencing art for the first time. So it's, it's exciting. Uh, you know, speaking of experiencing art, they say about writers that in order to be a good writer, you have to be a reader. And so how are you interacting with art yourself and not just someone as a creator of art but also someone who is a consumer of art do you find it challenging now to go into exhibitions and see art or interact with art uh, given that you've lost your vision do some of the barriers that you're trying to alleviate through your art form uh, continue to persist when you try to engage with other people's artwork oh uh, true you know we live in a world made for visual people you know you, you can't get around that you know, and when I go to a gallery, I didn't go to a gallery for nearly over 10 years. It'll come up to 10 years before, you know, what the diagnosis, because all the description didn't give me the, the power, the access, the emotional response to art that I usually felt. And I felt excluded, you know. The, all the description was quite patronising. You know, I don't want to be told in the left-hand corner there's a sun and in the right-hand corner there's green grass. That gives me nothing as a viewer, you know. So that's why last year I teamed up with one of my friends, uh, uh, Steve, who I call my talking guide dog. And we have a podcast called Art in Sight, where we literally go to galleries and have a conversation with art, have an emotional response to the art. You know, I make him look at the art differently with someone who can see, and it makes him question what that art is. So we have a conversation with that piece, and that's really exciting. And unfortunately, I can't always take my guide dog to these places. 
Um, but I'm hoping, you know, galleries and museums will start to think. We live in a creative world. Let's start thinking creatively about how we're describing the art form. Do you so you feel that we should really get into a more conversational uh, and uh, you know and a discussion based description rather than simply a factual description? You know, this is on the top left side and this is on the bottom right hand side. Uh, are you saying that audio description also needs to evolve to try and capture more of the emotion in the artwork? It does, and also the voice. The voice plays a key role. You know, audio books are amazing. You know, when you listen to an author, you're engrossed because they have high pitch and low pitch. But when you go to an audio description in a gallery, it's all one tone. It's all monotone. It's all it's all off a script. There's no emotion. Like, I'm talking to you how excited I am about art and my passion. There's no passion coming through the voice. Now, you know, if they show someone, you've got 90 seconds to grab my attention. Right? In that 90 seconds, you want to tell a story. You know, so think about how you're going to tell that story within 90 seconds. Yeah, how do you tell a story in 90 seconds? That's a, that's a challenge, I would imagine. Uh, what sort of artwork have you had a chance to visit when you, when you did your podcast? Uh, what are some of the things that you've had a chance to take a look at, for want of a better phrase? Oh, we, we, we looked at everything. And what I did with my uh, guide, uh, my guide uh, dog, speaking guide dog, is he did no um, research. So he went in there blind. And we experienced the art for the first time together. So it was sculpture, it was paintings, it was textiles, contemporary art, it was portraiture. Um, but the best one we went to was a sculpture part where you could physically touch everything. So it was role reversal. I was describing the artwork to him because oh. <laughs> I was allowed to touch. Yeah. And that's the power of touch. And that's that was an amazing experience. Oh, you know what? I should have asked you this earlier, but when you actually do your artwork and you have the Braille dots, what are the dots made of? Oh, so my dots are made out of uh, three mil, mil birch uh, thickness and they're two centimetres in diameter. So two centi centimetres and one centimetre is a great size because it can still be read almost like speed touch with your hand. It's a great feeling. Um, but also, I don't always use a dot. So my, one of my uh, pieces I've just done recently, we just had a massive coronation in our, you know, after losing a monarch after 70 years, so we had a big coronation. So I did the Union Jack, but the dots weren't dots. They were the silhouette of the king and queen. And it called, oops, I sang the wrong monarch. So it was the um, the national anthem, but in Braille, but the Braille dots were the king and queen. Wow. How much time does it take for you to create one of these works of art? I, I feel like the, the one related to the coronation must have taken quite a while. But in general, what sort of time frame do you need to have to produce one of these works of art? It does take a while. Like any artist, like they would have their sketchbook and they would do their comparative drawings and colour sketches, you know. So for me, the first thing I do is uh, work out what I'm going to do. So after Union Jack, I had to work out, um, pixelated the Union Jack. And it was a hard flag because even when you can see, it's not an identical mirror image flag, so it's really confusing for the brain anyway. And then I had to work out the, the national anthem. So I composition with words. So once that was sorted out, and then working with the company that, does my dots working out those silhouettes that they fit into the structure so the whole thing took about a month to do um and then obviously the piece took around 40 hours to complete um and that's me standing 
eight hours at a time. I don't see, when I'm starting, when you know, you know, when you're an artist, you start your work and then you forget to eat, you forget to drink, you're just in the zone. <laughs> yes, uh, it's true. Uh, where is it now? Is it, uh, is it in Buckingham Palace, uh, hanging well, uh, in the throne room? <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. So it was, uh, it was greatly uh, at the uh, an affordable art fair at Hampstead Heath and through Qantas Gallery. And now um, Qantas Gallery have got it. And, and I'm hoping a buyer will purchase it because it's a one-off, you know. And, and that one to touch was beautiful because you imagine those those silhouettes from the old Victorian era, how they did the old cameos. It was like that. And when I was feeling it, and the idea is because people don't look at art closely enough, they look at it from a distance, they just see this weird squiggle. So when you get close and they realise it's a silhouette, and then you touch it. It's a great feel. It's one of the best ones to feel. Mm, oh, I bet. Yeah, I can just imagine the detail. That would have been fascinating. I'm jealous. My fingers are quivering because I'd have loved to have a feel myself. Uh, when I think about London, there are so many galleries and museums. The Victorian Albert is, of course, very famous. The British Museum is excellent. Um, and they've made a lot of strides to make their... Uh, their exhibits and their their collections more accessible. Uh, the British Museum has an audio description. Think what you will of that. And they've got the um, the gallery where you get replicas of everything. You can go and touch the columns and what have you. Do you think, based on your artistic practice, some of these larger institutions could do more to make their collections more accessible? They can. And it doesn't have to cost a fortune. You know, we talked about audio description at the start. I mean, that's a great, easy way to do that now. But accessibility doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be, oh, it's got to be done this way because it's been done this way for the last 30, 50 years. You know, we are creators. We should be pushing the boundaries of how how to entice people, especially for me, it's about the younger generation of vision-impaired children. Now, I'm the proud patron of the charity Victor, which is the vision-impaired children's charity and young adults. I mean, that's amazing. I want them to go, when they're younger, think, hang on a minute, I want to work in the creative industry. I want to be an artist, be a poet, be in front of the camera. So we've got to entice them to make them go into these institutes thinking, I'm going to be excited about what I'm going to about to be see or hear or touch. You know, let's make it exciting. I agree with you. Listen, I've been building suspense over the duration of the program. I know I'm eager to at least see some of your artwork and I know the audience is likewise eager to see some of your amazing works of art. You're going to describe them for us and we'll have the images up on the screen for the people who can see uh, will see and the people who need the description will hear. So why don't you go ahead and describe a couple of the pieces that we're going to look at today. Sure. So we talked about my colour-coded brown. Now I created a colour-coded braille and it wasn't just random. It wasn't like Damien O'Hurst just paints his colour dots as, as, as if. You know, I looked at the commonality of letters appearing in words and then used colour theory. So you imagine you've got 26 colours and they've all got to be harmonious. So somehow over the part, it took me a month to figure out this, this colour coordination. And people say to me about colour, how I can physically see colour. Well, I don't. I have a memory of colour. I have 30 years of memory. So what I'm doing now is I'm using that memory, but then creating new memories of how I perceive colour now. So for instance, E is orange and R is blue because a lot of words end in ER. So they're complementary colours. So I'm creating artwork you see the decode and the, the braille piece. It's basically like a painter paints a portrait or landscape using complementary shades of colour. I paint in words. So those two pieces, are one's the decode and then one is the definition of braille in my colour-coded braille. 
um, and they're, they're great. And I love my colour-coded brow. It's because every piece is unique depending on the background colour because that's how we perceive colour. You know, the background changes the colour even though it's the same colour that we used previously. So I, I'm excited about going forward on that. Um, the other pieces are uh, Journey by Dots, which I used neon-coloured dots. So I wanted the gallery to be in the dark. And the only way for people to guide people through the experience was to do UV light and dots that glowed in the dark. So you were guided by my art in, in a safe space because bright lights hurt my eyes as a blind person. So I wanted the, the gallery to be in the dark. So that was a really emotional piece because it was part of um, an exhibition that I had at the gallery that inspired me as a six-year-old to become an artist. Uh, so that was really exciting. Um, and then that came with a piece uh, which is a light box, which is braille, which I literally drilled thousands of holes into a piece of board. And that piece is all about how art saved my life and how art is my light as my world is getting darker. So that was part of that journey by dots, um, which is really cool. And then following on to my Fab to Touch, uh, which is at Qu Qantas Gallery, which is gave me my first big solo exhibition in London, which which basically made me the artist I am today because they give me a platform to shout about who I am and what I do. And those pieces are inspired by Andy Warhol's soup cans. And the idea is he had those prints and these are prints, but they can be touched and they all tell different stories. But the beauty is just changing the background colour. Right? You perceive that story differently as a visual story, but a blind person when touching it will feel the same story. So they're exciting. And then the other uh, art, not as an artwork, it's a photo of me meeting a young girl at a music festival and who changed my life. Her name was Etta and I was doing this brow trial with uh, a group called Seekers Crate. And I bumped into her at a sea of 50,000 people. It was meant to be. And I had my brow suit on, which you can touch. And, we, and she um, asked if she could touch the suit and we got chatting and then her dad asked me, why do you want to touch the man's suit? And Etta said, because I'm blind. Now as a blind adult, we don't come across blind children. We're separate for some reason. And she changed my life. She changed how I perceive my art. It's like, what would Etta want? What would Etta like? If she came to a gallery, how could she perceive that art? So I create art as if, I was Etta, if I was like a five-year-old kid again, going to experience art. So she really did change how I am on this artistic journey. That's really fantastic. And we don't really think a lot about uh, small children, especially uh, kids with disabilities. You mentioned that a lot of schools go through your exhibits and um, really sort of taken the art. What kind of reception have you had from young people? Because I often feel that when we work with young people, it's such a golden opportunity to change attitudes about people with disabilities that having people experience an exhibit like yours when someone is five, six, seven years old can change not just their perception of blindness, but can change their outlook on the world, quite possibly. It's true. So um, I go to schools a lot and I teach Braille and I teach art. And obviously we're in this environment now where it's all coding, it's all computers and Braille is a code. So they get it. And then when you give them colour, they understand it. And then secretly they're learning maths as well because it's a mathematical language. So you get all those layers in. But the best thing is, is kids ask questions that adults are afraid to ask. 
uh, you know, what is sight loss? How can I see? How do I do this? You know, so the idea is to break down the stigma attached to sight loss. So going into schools, getting those the kids to ask those questions, and then 20 years down the line, they know how to react and, de- you know, and think of us differently. We're not, you know, bl- blindness is normal. That's that's the idea. Blindness is normal, right? I'm just like anybody else, just that I have a white cane, you know, and that's what I, I want society to, to make us feel. It's it's important that those children understand what blindness is so they can just, when they see someone down the street, if they find them in someone's in trouble, they know how to react. And uh, this year so far, I've engaged with over 3,000 children. Hey, listen, I've only got about 30 seconds left here to talk to you. But uh, Clark, I got to ask you, are you planning another trip to Canada anytime soon, preferably exhibiting some of your artworks? Because we have a lot of great gallery space in Toronto and in Vancouver, as a matter of fact, and all across the country. So any plans in the work to come to Canada and exhibit some of your work? I want to rule the world in Braille. I would (laughs) love to have a major exhibition in, in Toronto you know, and Vancouver, you know, like I said, it's one of the most friendliest places in the world, Canada. I remember when I was 21, just walking down the streets and, you know, on my own, I went into Canada on my own and I didn't, I felt as safe as brick houses. So my aim, my aim is to be as big as those artists I've mentioned before, to change how we see blindness in the creative industry, you know? So if anyone is listening and they want to, you know, you know, I want to create a piece that's got a hundred thousand dots. How long will that take you? <laughs> uh, that would probably take me a couple of weeks. You know, got the story right. I'm there with the dots. I'm, you know, as long as I've got my chocolate biscuit and my audio book, I'll be fine. <laughs> hey, that sounds great. Uh, Clark Reynolds, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It was a pleasure. It's been great. Thank you so much. Clark Reynolds is the blind Braille artist. His website, seeingwithoutseeing.com, has a information about upcoming exhibits. Of course, if you live in the UK, uh, you can go and check those out there. But we hope you can come to Canada and we can get to, get to see and feel and experience some of Clark's amazing work. Um, this was a, such a great conversation and I'm sad to have to wrap it up, but we are unfortunately out of time. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Don't forget to leave permission to play the voicemail on the program. You can also send us an email, write to feedback at ami.ca. You can also find us on Twitter at AMIAudio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. If you'd like to look me up on Twitter, I am still there at Juita Gupta. My videographer today has been Ted Cooper. Ryan Delahanty is the coordinator for AMI Podcasts. Marka Flalo is our uh, technical producer. And Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. I've been your host, Joita Gupta. Thanks for listening. <laughs>